0: Those things are very expensive, but I might eventually do it. But like, I like my Mac Air. You know, it well, out.
1: I actually so Chromebook is different. So I actually started recording. So there's that. So David, everybody knows about your uh, of, uh, computers now. Like <laughs> oh, okay. uh, c- to welcome everybody, even though we took a week off. There, uh, back to Acts, uh, the book of Acts, and. We should go ahead and dive right in because there's a lot of text here, uh, and I don't know how many of you all were um, listening to the live feed from um, the vespers. But I would like us to also look at Daniel chapter seven tonight a little bit, and we'll we'll see that at the end here. Why I would why I want to do that?
0: Okay.
1: Not just because I'm named for Daniel the prophet, but there that is. So, who would like to start reading? I'll be happy to go. Go ahead, please. And we're using RSV.
2: Yes. Uh, <clears throat> Do you have a place, a uh, particular verse you'd like me to stop, Father?
1: Mm, how about eight for. No, just let's uh, go till
2: till you say so.
1: <laughs> go to. <laughs> are you reading off the screen, or are you reading a version you have?
2: Uh, I'm reading off the screen. Uh, let's see. Okay, go ahead.
1: I'll I'll make sure to move so you can actually
2: see. <laughs> <laughs> okay, and and the high priest said, "Is this so?" <clears throat> and Stephen said, "Brothers and fathers, hear me." The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia before he lived in Haran, and said to him, Depart from your land and from your kindred, and go into the land which I will show you. Then he departed from the land of the Chaldeans and lived in Haran, and after his father died, God removed him there into this land in which you are now living. Yet he gave him no inheritance in it, not even a foot's length but promised to give it to him in possession and to his posterity after him, though he had no child. And God spoke to this effect that his posterity would be aliens in a land belonging to others who would enslave them and ill-treat them 400 years. But I will judge the nation which they serve, said God, and after that they shall come out and worship me in this place. And he gave them the covenant of circumcision. And so Abraham became the father of Isaac and circumcised him on the eighth day. And Isaac became the father of Jacob and Jacob of the twelve patriarchs. And the patriarchs, jealous of Joseph, sold him into Egypt. But God was with him and rescued out of all his afflictions. Gave him favor and wisdom before Pharaoh, king of Egypt, who made him governor over Egypt and over all his household. Now there came a famine throughout all Egypt and Canaan, and great affliction, for our fathers could find no food. But when Jacob heard that there was grain in Egypt, he sent forth our fathers the first time. And at the second visit, Joseph made himself known to his brothers, and Joseph's family became known to Pharaoh. And Joseph sent and called to him Jacob, his father, and all his kindred, 75 souls. And Jacob went down into Egypt, and he died himself, and our fathers, and they were carried back to Shechem and laid in the tomb that Abraham had bought for a sum of silver from the sons of Hamor in Shechem.
1: I think we should go ahead and keep reading because I would like us to just keep reading. So we can, I want us to go ahead and read the whole chapter actually, and then we'll go back through the chapter. Okay. So who would like to read the next section? I will. Oh, is that David Waite? Yeah, sure. I mean I, I, I will. I thought somebody else would they wanted to read to do that. I, I I'll continue reading. It doesn't it doesn't No me... con- continue reading. There we go. You continue. <laughs> mm.
2: But as the time of the promise drew near, which God had granted to Abraham, the people grew and multiplied in Egypt, till there arose over Egypt another king who had not known Joseph. He dealt craftily with our race and forced our fathers to expose their infants that they might not be kept alive. At this time, Moses was born and was beautiful before God. And he was brought up for three months in his father's house. And when he was exposed, Pharaoh's daughter adopted him and brought him up as her own son. And Moses was instructed in all the wisdom of the Egyptians, and he was mighty in his words and deeds. When he was 40 years old, it came into his heart to visit his brethren, the sons of Israel. And seeing one of them being wronged, he defended the oppressed man and avenged him by striking the Egyptian. He supposed that his brethren understood that God was giving them deliverance by his hand, but they did not understand. And on the following day, he appeared to them as they were quarreling and would have reconciled them, saying, Men, your brethren, why do you wrong each other? But the man who was wronged, excuse me, but the man who was wronging his neighbor thrust him aside saying, who made you a ruler and judge over us? Do you want to kill me as you killed the Egyptian yesterday? At this retort, Moses fled and became an exile in the land of Midian, where he became the father of two sons. Now, when 40 years had passed, an angel appeared to him in the wilderness of Mount Sinai in a flame of fire in a bush. When Moses saw it, he wondered at the sight, and as he drew near to look, the voice of the Lord came, I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham and of Isaac and of Jacob. And Moses trembled and did not dare to look. And the Lord said to him, take off the shoes from your feet, for the place you are standing is holy ground. I have surely seen the ill treatment of my people that are in Egypt and heard their groaning, and I have come down to deliver them, and now come. I will send you to Egypt. This Moses, whom they refused, saying, Who made you a ruler and judge? God sent as both ruler and deliverer by the hand of the angel that appeared to him in the bush. He led them out, having performed wonders and signs in Egypt and at the Red Sea and in the wilderness for 40 years. This is the Moses who said to the Israelites, God will raise up for you a prophet from your brethren as he raised me up. This is he who was in the congregation in the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him at Mount Sinai and with our fathers, and he received living oracles to give to us. Our fathers refused to obey him, but thrust him aside, and in their hearts they turned to Egypt, saying to Aaron, Make for us gods to go before us. As for this Moses who led us out from the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. And they made a calf in those days and offered a sacrifice to the idol and rejoiced in the work of their hands. God turned and gave them over to worship the host of heaven as it is written in the book of the prophets did you offer to me slain beasts and sacrifices 40 years in the wilderness O house of Israel and you took up the tent of Malach and the star of the god Repham the figures which you made to worship and I will remove you out I will remove you beyond Babylon our fathers had the tent of witness in the wilderness, even as he who spoke to Moses directed him to make it according to the pattern that he had seen. Our fathers, in turn, brought it, with them, brought it in with Joshua when they dispossessed the nations which God thrust out before our fathers. So it was until the days of David who found favor in the sight of God and was asked to leave to find a habitation for the God of Jacob. But it was Solomon who built a house for him. Yet the Most High does not dwell in houses made with hands, as the prophet says. Heaven is my throne, and earth is my footstool. What house will you build for me, says the Lord, or what is the place of my rest? Did not my hand make all these things? You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did not your fathers persecute? (laughs) <laughs> and they killed those, and they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered, who you received the law as delivered by the angels and did not. Let me let's to... let's you, stop there. Who received the law as delivered by uh, angels and did not keep it. There you it's... go. So this
1: is the longest sermon in the book of Acts, and it is the most detailed. Um, are you all familiar with um, Targums or uh, some of the tractates of um, Judaism? You you would find, uh, they're called like the Babylonian Targums, and they'll be of uh, like Genesis or Exodus. Uh, and these are basically, I wouldn't say, sh- they're, they're retellings of the great, stories of of, uh, scripture. So what you get from them, and you can tell, it's it's interesting to read some of them uh, and then read some of the fathers and see some of the influence kind of bleeding over into how they're reading the text too. Uh, So why am I bringing up these? these, uh, Because Stephen here does a masterful job of giving us a kind of rundown of all the patriarchs and then he makes a very hard right turn and goes right for the goal at the end <laughs> uh, when he uh, doubles down and suddenly goes for the gut there with the, the, the um, high priest and those who were um, accusing him uh, specifically of speaking words against this holy place in the law uh, because they had also heard this from Jesus and specifically that they would change the customs which Moses delivered. So what do you all make of this ste- this telling that Stephen does of the story? Is there anything that jumps out at you or questions about the way that he narrates this or particular turns of phrases or things he adds in or doesn't talk about or...
0: Yeah, I had to glance back at six really quickly to give me some context on this. And he's actually, he's talking to the Sanhedrin.
1: He's talking to the high priest and the synagogue of the freedmen who then, uh, and then brought them before the council, which is basically, uh, yeah, the Sanhedrin before. So this is basically his chance to pull what um, Peter had been doing earlier in the book of Acts which is witness to Jesus Christ um, while he's being interrogated. Yeah. Yeah. So they basically say that he's speaking blasphemous words, uh, specifically words against this holy place, AKA the temple uh, and the law, and that he wants basically to unseat Moses and change what Moses had given to them. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Well, I haven't, I haven't read this for a long time, so I was pretty amazed to read it.
1: What, what do you, what, why? So, what, let, let me ask this. Why does he start with Abraham? Well, that's where the story begins, doesn't it? Why not Adam or any, like, why, why with Abraham? I mean, I, David, I think you're, you're, you're definitely on to something there. Yeah. Well, not that you're wrong, but. That was Abraham the
3: start of is, the uh, set of aside people,
1: right? So you you begin the um, as the patriarchs with Abraham, right. and he's going to basically narrate for them. I mean, so one, why does he narrate this to these people? With no my mate. Is, is this just a simple narration of, of facts?
0: You see, I, I listen to this and you, you said yeah. he makes a hard turn and I don't see the hard turn.
1: The hard turn is at the very end where he goes... It
0: doesn't seem to me to be actually a hard turn. It seems to me it flows very well.
1: It would be yes. for his audience, though. Right. Well, I would say, so you have him saying... You know, the Most High does not dwell in the houses made with hands, and then he immediately goes to you stiff-necked people and circumcised in the hearts and ears. You always resist the Holy Spirit. Yeah, he immediate he immediately contemporary makes it contemporary with him.
2: and he also becomes the accuser. Yeah.
1: Yes, but it, it's, it, it seems quite consistent
0: with what he's already said.
1: How so? Flesh it out for me.
0: Well, I mean, yeah, let me pull it here, but 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 I mean.
1: I think you're onto something of what I'm getting at is not, it's not just simple narration. He's basically building a case. He's like a lawyer here, David. Oh, absolutely.
0: absolutely. Well, I like it.
1: Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, but, but he, he's, he's going, going point by point to show why their case against him, that this, this holy place and the law and the customs of Moses were all pointing to and foreshadowing something else. Exactly exactly and the something else has arrived correct in Jesus Christ and you killed it exactly Which so with Abraham he's uh-huh. underlining uh, I'll, let's look at verse 6 for example I I, I can actually kind of highlight it here I didn't re- I've never been able to actually see what I'm doing when I have this oh I can even Whoa. oh no now it wants me to do things oh, no. go away okay. So God spoke to this effect that his posterity would be aliens in a land belonging to others who would enslave them and ill treat them 400 years. Are they in a much different situation They're They are now aliens in their own land in a certain sense. They're allowed to be there, but the Romans actually are over them. Right. And there's underlying throughout this, they will worship me in this place, but it's something that Abraham never actually possessed. It's something that gets kicked down as, um, Promise. You get down to the patriarchs, who are jealous of Joseph. There's a famine. They, you can already see the kind of hard heartedness of the patriarchs too here. That there's uh, even the patriarchs have uh, aren't always in tune with what God is doing, and so it has to use Joseph, and so you have that whole narrative. And let's see here. You have Moses who is raised up. And I think he's specific in using this language here of was beautiful before God that jumped out at me for some reason this afternoon as I was rereading this. And he comes up when he's 40 years old, uh, He goes and he visits his brethren, the sons of Israel. Uh, They don't really understand what he's doing again. You have this misunderstanding going on. Um, He then goes and he becomes an exile. Then he comes back because God uh, appears to him. He's going to go back into Egypt. Moses refuses, saying, who made you a ruler? To Moses, they refuse again. You have resistance from Israel to the one chosen by God, as you had earlier um, with, uh, sorry, my mind is starting to blank on me. Um, With Joseph, you have Moses also being misunderstood, uh, but he's sent as a ruler and a deliverer. And again, we have, as I mentioned in the last time we uh, met, the hand of the angel that appeared to him. So we have the angels being noted here. In a Jewish understanding of the, and we see it reflected in the New Testament, that God is the one present on Mount Sinai, but it is uh, angelic ministrations that are handing the law over, um, as we see here in verse 38. And, of course, we have the ultimate rebellion. As Moses is up on Mount Sinai, we have in verse 39, the fathers refusing to obey him, and they end up uh, just basically descending right into idolatry with his brother of all people. So then they make, uh, he makes a turn here to further with Moses that this happens at the same time to, uh, to reflect their accusation about this holy place that they had, that they had built a tent of witness in the wilderness, according to a pattern that had been uh, revealed to Moses. Then Josh then Joshua brought it then you have David and then you have Solomon and then he goes right for the prophets and says yet the most high does not dwell in houses made with hands as the prophet says and then he immediately goes to and this language you stiff-necked people uncircumcised in heart and ears this is straight up Old Testament language this is language of the prophets this is the language of Deuteronomy um to be stiff-necked means they don't uh, incline their ear. They don't pay attention. They're um, proud. They're uncircumcised. Not bodily they're circumcised, but they remain not dedicated to God in heart or ears. And they're resistors of the Holy Spirit, just as their fathers did. As the fathers, as he says, persecuted and resisted all of the prophets beforehand. And now, of course, he's saying, um, you've now rejected the righteous one, the one whom all the prophets foretold and talked about, you betrayed and murdered, you who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. So one can imagine what the response is. <laughs> they didn't like this very much.
3: Mm-mm.
1: Did anyone want to have any comments about anything from that very long sermon from Stephen?
2: Preach it, Stephen. <laughs> <laughs> really. really?
0: Just that I. Uh... Just the context. Just my continued study of the Old Testament is that these yeah. places where it's so helpful in reading the New Testament.
1: Yeah.
0: You know these people who try to separate the two. And you, I just the, the more I get a feel for, which requires study, but I get a feel for the Old Testament, the more meaningful the New Testament becomes. So this really this this really resonates in a way it doesn't if I don't know all the stories. Correct. Sure.
1: And this is the entire trajectory. This is the Christian understanding. Uh, Christ is the the prophet to end all prophets, the king to end all kings, the priest to end all priests. Uh, he is the fulfillment of everything. And of course, why would we, his people, do anything different than what the people in the past had done? And this is also... Um, a chance for us to kind of, you know, so we've, we've grasped, uh, as the fathers would talk about the literal meaning. So in some ways, Stephen's retelling of all this is the literal uh, telling of the story of Israel. Right. What I mean by literal is not what we typically think is literal. Uh, we think of literal and we kind of think that means some kind of um, uh, like fundamentalist reading of scripture, because there a lot of, um, certain conservative Protestants will talk about that they read scripture literally. And what they mean is that they actually believe in like resurrection or virgin birth and those kind of things. So when the fathers talk about the historical literal meaning of a text, they're talking about what the text says, right? Like the narration of the story. So for example, when you read St. Gregory of Nyssa's uh, the life of Moses, the first part, half of that book is basically him telling the whole life of Moses, like Stephen kind of does here. And he chooses certain things and he articulates, but he basically recapitulates the entire story of Moses, as we know from the book of Exodus. So he, once he's done that, he then goes on to interpret all the things of the story of Moses. Uh, what does it mean for him to, you know, have approached the burning bush, uh, what does it mean for him to have taken off his sandal? What does it mean that he saw the uh, as Stephen here points out the pattern uh, on Mount Sinai for the the temple, the tent of witness? what does it mean that he etc 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 so in the spirit of Gregory, is there anything from this that you feel like speaks to you in a way beyond just, okay, that's a great retelling of the history of Israel that I basically already knew. Um, That would be a great thing for the uh, Sunday school (laughs) as a narration. Is there anything there that you hear at a different level? There's a few things that I hear at a different level, but I'm not going to say them yet. is what I just said clear or am I clear as mud? I got it. I got it. Y'all got it as in you got something to say too. (laughs) I mean, I think there's a a kind of basic thing. Uh, I'm not really different from mm, any stiff necked people and circumcised and heart and ears resisting the Holy spirit. That's for sure. That I count that 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 hurts. That that that's accurate.
3: Like why you gotta at me, Stephen?
1: Yeah, exactly. There
3: <laughs> that's kids <'cause> these <laughs> days they say
1: update this to completely contemporary lingo. You might have to explain that.
3: Um to at someone is like when you see like a post on the social media and you do like the at sign their username just to make sure they see it because it, it like applies to them and sometimes it can be good but sometimes it's um
1: it's, it's, it's like a defensive posture like don't get don't get at me yeah huh. <laughs> <laughs> no, <you're laughs> not- like why do you have to go I'm there I'm not sure I understand but I'll get at you, David. Don't worry. (laughs)
2: Okay. Erica is a font of knowledge on contemporary (laughs) contemporary culture.
3: I have nieces and nephews. I have to understand what they mean.
1: I can also hear in verse fifty-three. We've received. I can hear like the Book of Hebrews in the background. I'm thinking of this this verse you who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. And I know we received the law incarnate delivered, uh, by God himself, who's ministered to by the angels. And yet I don't keep the law. And there's ways this is, I think as we read this, these texts, uh, and I think this is probably why a lot of Orthodox churches struggle with how to do Bible studies in the way that people, when they say, I want a Bible study, they kind of want somebody to explain stuff. And I think that's important. Uh, but the tradition is not just, now I've got all of my uh, information correct, uh, but it is now... We've laid the basic groundwork, and the tradition says, "Okay, now you understand the narration. Now you understand what Stephen said. So, what does that mean, or how? What What are you going to take from that? And this is where the reading of scripture, um, with things like the practice of the, this is the Latin term, lectio divina, but of kind of prayerful reading of texts, allows us to be able to find ourselves in the text." Uh, and allow the text to actually speak to our hearts and not just to uh, our brains, as it were. Uh, That we kind of read, I mean, to put this in a little bit more sentimental terms, to read it devotionally instead of just intellectually. Mm -hmm.
0: Well, that whole paragraph, starting with 51, Next people. And this is an experience that's becoming more common to me is I start to identify more and more with the Sanhedrin. Right. Over time I've begun to identify an awful lot with the Pharisees. And, and, and it's kind of like the way I identify with a lot of people in the Psalms now, the Psalms have become so beloved to me. And I identify with so many of the writers of the Psalms, including when they are angry. Now that doesn't mean that I think, okay, I'm all right, because if, if they got away with it, I can get away with it. Doesn't mean anything, <laughs> it doesn't mean anything like that at all. What it does is it deeply comforts me, is that people thousands of years ago, and getting back to the Psalms, many thousands of years ago committed the same errors and had the same problems that I have and so this makes me feel less alone in my spiritual weakness in in my in my ignorance and, and, and so on and and so forth and so there's a there's a bizarre kind of comfort in that that you know it's not that you know, I, I said, there's nothing special about me to, in my failure to understand Christ and to accept him and to follow him and to know who he is. The whole thing's been misunderstood <laughs> longer than we can imagine. It's been grossly misunderstood for millennia. You know, and so, okay, so that just makes me one of the human race. You know? And that's kind of nice to be one of the human race
1: oh, for what it's worth. Yeah. yeah. It's good to, to face reality, uh, especially because scripture unfortunately gets used so often as a kind of um, tool or just a section here to make an argument about X, Y, or Z or find my ideology already in the text. Prepared for me, uh, instead of actually finding Christ, encountering God in the text, and that requiring humility and our hearts to be softened by that. I mean, even taking away that heaven is His throne and earth my footstool. What house will you build for me, says Lord? Or what is the place of my rest? Did not my hand make all these things to contemplate God as the Creator? And the fact that, yes, we build temples and he is present there in a particular way, but he is to not forget in any sense to, because we have this tendency to want to make God fit into our little boxes, close the top, put them on the shelf, and we've got control of them. And that is not the most high uh to contemplate being within the line of the the fathers uh as well i mean they could take this not just as being the bad guys or the villains in the text which i think is a pedagogy in of itself but also to find that ourselves in the line uh with abraham with joseph with moses with david with solomon And knowing as soon as we even bring up those names, all the little, I'll say micro histories, the histories that all of them bring up. Like, I can't think of David without thinking of Psalm 50. I can't think of Solomon without thinking of wisdom and all of the wisdom literature. I can't think about Abraham without thinking about uh, the need, uh, like being the pilgrim people of God. I can't think about Joseph uh, without... His rejection with his steadfastness and faithfulness. I mean you can think of all of these characters, uh, not just characters, men and women of scripture, and just I and mean, this shows up in the homilies of the Fathers. Um, uh, Chris system will spend a lot of time with each individual one of these uh, patriarchs and draw out all of their virtues. Ambrose of Milan also does this in a series of homilies. Um, which, which is fascinating because we have a tendency today, uh, which is actually something that Augustine struggled with when he first read the old Testament, was just be like, man, these guys, <laughs> what was wrong with them?
3: Thank you. Lord. I'm not like these people. <laughs> yeah.
1: Like Moses and Zipporah and like cutting and like, you're a bloody man. Like, ooh. <laughs> uh, but Ambrose and Chrysostom read them and see them as uh, the book of Hebrews as, you know, a part of the hall of faith of what we just read this past Sunday for uh, Sunday of all saints Um, that we have all of these uh, who've gone on before us uh, who, and you can see in the way that Stephen articulates this, it helps us to also see Christ because you can see how in Christ um, sorry, I'm moving the screen too much. We can see in Christ, um, in microcosms in each of their lives, like with the ways that I just narrated, all of the, like the the things about them. We see then in Christ all of that uh, writ large. Now, how God has been—you can see then God working through all of those men and folks in the Old Testament, uh, and then how Christ comes, and then as the Book of Hebrews, I'm especially thinking of that, you know. We have a greater than Moses. We have a greater than Abraham. We have a greater than fill in the blank, David, Solomon uh, in Christ. So this, I I think in the contemplation of scripture, there's a lot that it helps. And I kind of have been, um, uh, how should I say this? Hitting on this point a lot of the need to know scripture. Mm -hmm. And I'm going to keep on doing it because we need to know scripture uh, because you're not going to understand the liturgy or anything else that's going on if you don't understand scripture. Um, So that's me hitting that drum again and now I'm going to go to another drum. (laughs) So at the end, uh, who would like to read the last because we didn't read the last uh, 54 through 60. I can. Go ahead.
3: Now, when they heard these things, they were enraged and they ground their teeth against him. And as they were stoning Stephen, he prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And he knelt down and cried with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep.
1: Stephen, the proto-martyr, as he's killed. Remember last time when we're in chapter six and we saw, um, his face shining like Moses. Um, We now have here him full of the Holy Spirit as he's basically being attacked. And he gazes up into heaven and saw the glory of God, which he starts off his sermon talking about the glory of God, having revealed to Abraham. And Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, behold, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. Now, what is going on? Daniel. Daniel. The Gospels pick up on this language and there is an intensification. If you don't understand, on one level you could read this and say Stephen is just having a vision and then they continue their onslaught. Uh, I think the onslaught as they say in 57, but they cried out with a loud voice and they stopped their ears and they rushed uh, together upon him because they know what he's talking about. Uh, he's referencing, uh, we can look at Daniel chapter seven. Uh, and I'd like us to actually read this cause I think, um, and this will give us an idea. We don't have to read all about the, um, uh, four, the four, uh, beasts as much as, The fourth beast when he starts interpreting the vision that he sees. Um, When I was taught, I've talked about the echoes of scripture before and how it helps to know when there's a phrase in the New Testament to actually go back and look at the Old Testament and see. uh, So, for example, in, in his sermon, he's quoting Jeremiah and Isaiah. So, it'd be helpful to go back. And look at the broader context, excuse me, of those prophets. And I'm sure you would be able to suss out more meaning uh, and that he knows as he's saying this to these literate, uh, you know, Jewish leaders that they know what he's talking about. So when he says the son of man, um, they know that he's referring to the prophetic tradition. Uh, The son of man also shows up in Ezekiel uh, but I, there's a reason why I want us to look at Daniel uh, 7. And let's start, actually. This is, I mean, here we are in apocalyptic language. If you want to talk about apocalyptic language, Daniel, Daniel's got it in spades. If you are reading the book of Revelation and you're just like, wowie, kazowie, you look back at Daniel and you're like, okay, that's where he got it. Uh, besides Ezekiel and some other prophets so this uh, is a vision or a dream that Daniel had and it's about four great beasts uh, coming up out of the sea one of the first uh, I'm giving this is my uh, narrative like Stephen of so we can get the cliff notes at the beginning so we can look at some specific spots in Daniel 7 because we don't have all night Um, The first in verse 4 sees uh, one of the beasts that comes out of the sea is a lion that had eagle's wings Um, then there's another beast that's like a bear then there's a leopard with four wings of a bird on its back and it had four heads then I saw in the night visions in verse 7 and behold a fourth beast terrible and dreadful and exceedingly strong Great iron teeth, devoured in broken pieces, and stamped the residue with its feet. It was different from all the beasts that were before it, and it had ten horns. And I considered the horns, and behold, there came upon up among them another horn, a little one, before which three of the first horns were plucked up by the roots. And behold, in this horn were the eyes like the eyes of a man, and a mouth speaking great things. And as he looks, so there's all of this these beasts going on. And he looks, and we're in verse 9 of Daniel 7. Thrones were placed, and one that was ancient of days took his seat. His raiment was white as snow, and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames, its wheels were burning fire. A stream of fire issued and came forth from before him. A thousand, thousand served him, and ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court sat in judgment, and the books were opened." So we have here a throne room scene of the ancient of days who has seated and before him are the hosts of heaven. There's a stream of fire. Uh, It seems like he is on uh, some kind of chariot. Uh, And this is important. I mean, we, you have, I mean, how did Elijah get to heaven? A throne with a throne with fiery flames. Uh, This uh, is, um, part and parcel of Jewish uh, understanding of kind of being in the heavenlies. Uh, Ezekiel saw the wheel way up yonder in the middle of the air to uh, draw upon that great Moses Hogan spiritual. uh, At least I encountered that spiritual through Moses Hogan. Um, If you don't know what I'm talking about, YouTube it. Uh, And this scene is a great judgment scene. And Daniel looks up. In verse 11, because of the sound of the great words, which the horn was speaking, and as I looked, the beast was slain, and its body destroyed and given over to be burned with fire. And as for the rest, this is the fourth beast that was destroyed. And as for the rest of the beast, their dominion was taken away, but their lives were prolonged for a season at a time. And verse 13, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with clouds of heaven, there came like a sun, one like a son of man. And he came to the Ancient of Days. So we have the Son of Man entering into this judgment scene uh, before the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And he is given dominion. The fourth beast was given dominion. These other beasts were given dominion if we read closely, more closely at the beginning. The dominion that was taken away from them is given to him in glory and kingdom that all people's nations and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away. And his kingdom won that shall not be destroyed. I'm gonna keep reading a little bit. Well, actually I wanna stay here and stay, just stick with this for just a minute and then we'll keep moving. Um, You probably didn't think that we were going to get into apocalyptic literature from the book of Acts (laughs) since it reads like history, uh, like we should be reading first Kings or second Kings or Chronicles or something uh, instead of uh, the apocalyptic literature. But sorry, there's an apocalyptic scene in the book of Acts. So um, here we are. Um, this tradition you have, uh, I mean, who is the son of man? It's Jesus. Yes.
0: Correct. He, 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 frequently <laughs> he
1: frequently called himself that, did he not? Yes, he does. Very frequently. Uh, very frequently. Uh, the son of man, and it, who is the ancient of days? The father? That's that's a typical interpretation. I mean, you you can see this, and you might say, well, that's weird. But if you're familiar with the Psalms, as David has already brought up, the Psalter, uh, you have this kind of language, the Lord said to my Lord. Um, you have these kind of uh, conversations that occur in the Godhead in the Psalms. So, this idea that there's a one like the son of man. So we are kind of underlining too, that there's some kind of connection with humanity here. I'm sorry that my uh, it looks like I'm dwelling in the uncreated light over here, but this (laughs) is a really bright light. There we go. I just feel weird. So, uh, and he's presented before him and this, the son of man is given dominion, glory, kingdom. uh, And it's one that will not pass away. So of course, early Christians when they came across this text that was already existent within Jewish understanding, Jesus makes a whole lot of sense. Um, Let's see here. I want us to go ahead. I'll I'll keep reading because we have a little bit of time and this is just a fascinating, uh, this one, to be completely honest, this isn't the first times that Daniel seven actually kind of clicked and made sense for me. I have read Daniel (laughs) seven before. and just been like, what is going on? Uh, so as for me, this is verse 15, Daniel, my spirit within me was anxious and the visions of my head alarmed me. That makes sense. I approached one of those who stood there and asked him the truth concerning all this. So he told me and made known to me the interpretation of the thing. So we're going to get an interpretation of the dream. These four great beasts are four kings who shall rise out of the earth, but the saints of the most high shall receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever, forever and ever. Uh, part of the reason why I keep wanting to read this is we have this. Great throne room scene of uh, God the Father and the Son. So I'm tying this, of course, to Stephen. He sees the Son of Man now seated at the right hand of the Father of the Ancient of Days. Uh, and he is one of these saints that will receive the kingdom, uh, verse 18. So let's continue with verse 19. Then I desire to know the truth concerning the fourth beast, which is different from all the rest. Uh, exceedingly terrible, teeth of iron, claws of bronze... devoured and broken pieces and stamped the residue with its feet and about the 10 heads that were uh, 10 heads 10 horns that were on its head the other horn which came up and for which the three of them fell and as I looked I'm not going to read every single uh, part of this because it's a lot Uh, the horn made war with the saints and prevailed over them until the ancient of days came and judgment was given for the saints of the most high and the time came when the saints received the kingdom thus he said as for the fourth beast, this is verse 23, there shall be a fourth kingdom on earth, which shall be different from all the kingdoms and it shall devour the whole earth and trample it down and break it to pieces. As for the 10 horns out of the kingdom, 10 Kings shall rise. And another shall rise after them. And he shall be different from the former ones and shall put down three Kings. He shall speak words against the most high and shall swear out the saints of the most high and shall think to change the times and the law. And they shall be given into his hand for a time, two times, and half a time. But the court shall sit in judgment, and his dominion shall be taken away to be consumed and destroyed to the end. And the kingdom and the dominion and the greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven shall be given to the people of the saints of the Most High. Their kingdom shall be an everlasting kingdom, and all dominions shall serve and obey them. Here is the end of the matter. As for me, Daniel, my thoughts greatly alarmed me. My color changed, but I kept the matter in my mind. And his color changed as in, it made him ashen. <laughs> it made him spooked. Um, so all of this apocalyptic language, I don't, there, we could, there's a dissertation upon dissertation, book upon book written about this. The main thing I wanted to underline about this was you have the son of man, the ancient of days, and you have this judgment given on behalf of the saints and vindicating that they're going to receive the kingdom. I think that's what is in the background, uh, partly informing what's going in the background with Stephen. He sees the ancient of days and the son of man standing at the right hand of the ancient of days. And they hear this and they hear this as a judgment. <laughs> they hear him also saying that Jesus uh, is this son of man and is in, in the heavenly court. So again, affirming what Jesus had taught and what they had wanted to kill him for. And so uh, we have uh, Stephen then being stoned uh, and completing his life uh, in Christiform manner as a, as a martyr, as a, a witness. Maybe we all know, martyria, martyr as witness, that he um, dies in a very similar way as Christ did on the cross. Uh, with uh, you know Lord Jesus receive my spirit Again he's not uh, addre- It's important here he's addressing Jesus To receive his spirit To be vindicated part of that kingdom That shall never end uh, But also very um, Christ like to Ask for the sins Of those who were killing him To not be held against them We also get of course a very important Player in early Christianity in verse 58 Saul who later becomes a good old Paul. Um, Are there any things I, I kind of rushed through Daniel just because I didn't want to get too bogged down. And if you start asking me questions about what the horns and beasts are, I'm just going (laughs) to kind of go. I. I, (laughs) Okay. I'm not going to go that bad. Uh, I mean, I would tell you, I think, that you can break this down into the kingdoms. Uh, Rome probably is what the beast is, what the 10 horns are. And then the great, uh, I, I haven't spent time trying to dig into all of that. And I haven't been, I don't have my hands on uh, the fathers on Daniel either. Hmm. And I'm sure to be completely frank, I'm sure some of the fathers disagree with each other about what Daniel means in some of these places, because when you start getting on this kind of literature, um, apocalyptic literature and prophetic literature like this operates on a lot of different levels. One, I think that this language uh, was also helpful for the Jews when they read this in the context of, um, because Daniel is in the context of, uh, I mean, you see it at the very beginning of the book of Daniel, what happens at the beginning of the book of Daniel? He's, he's taken into captivity and he shows himself. They don't like he and the three, they don't, uh, they don't eat the food, right? They don't eat the unclean Mm -hmm. food. They keep the fast. So they stick out being Jewish in a land, uh, that's not Jewish and they don't fall for idolatry. So they stick to, cause at this time, uh, Daniel, you can kind of consider this. There's a lot of debate about this, but I would put this more of like closer to Maccabean time. Uh, so kind of in between, uh, and Daniel, uh, therefore is an interpretation, a kind of, um, plea for the Jews to maintain their Jewishness in the face of either being in the diaspora as they are uh, in uh, exile, but also with Hellenism coming down hard on them. Uh, can you imagine being in a Jewish male in a uh, Greco-Roman bath? Ha! It's mm. really obvious that you ain't a Greek. Get what I'm saying? <laughs> So it was really, there was a lot of pressure to conform and not do some of the basic, uh, identity markers for the Jewish people at that time. So there's something about Daniel that is very strongly underlining stay truth faithful, just like the Maccabean literature, right? The Maccabean literature where you get the martyrdom account, um, it's all about maintaining their Jewishness that the, that they make, they keep the covenant, they keep the, uh, the symbols of the covenant, uh, that they don't eat in the, you know, the temple food that, you know, all those kind of signs. Um, so this language, I think on one level operates for the faithful Jews at the time. And it's not, so what I'm saying is it's not just future events or that this is somehow even, um, like end of times because people also read Daniel and these texts and like, this is all about Russia and Iran and I don't know. And I would say India and China now is probably also up there for, you know, <laughs> sable rattling and nuclear war. Um, but this is ultimately, and I think we see this in how it's used in act seven, uh, an encouragement to the the saints to be faithful to the kingdom, uh, that will never end to, to, as the court, God will vindicate his people. uh, And the son of man comes forward as the one who is the one who will have that dominion. So for us, of course, this is Jesus Christ. So I just talked a whole lot. Does anybody have any questions, concerns, uh, footnotes, contemporary Twitter lingo to explain? If I could share real quickly. Please.
0: I I, I have an Episcopal friend who uh, years ago he told me he was going to a Bible study group. And I said, Oh, what are you studying? Because as I talked about before, I love Bible study. And the way he responded, he said they were studying Daniel. But the way he responded and the way he talked about it, he made it very clear to me <laughs> that I was not ready for the book of Daniel.
1: Because you're not initiated, right?
0: Yeah, yeah, I wasn't an initiated. In and in, in reflection, <laughs> I think, you know, it, it was probably a Gnostic Bible study group where whoever was leading the group said, okay, I'm going to let you on the big, secret about what each horn is. What each
1: the is. ten horns are the ten options at the local Chinese restaurant because that is <laughs> where the anti is going to come from. <laughs> 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 Don't get the number four. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Lord,
0: that's, why, sure. that's why I sometimes chortle and and, and speak up when people, you know, somebody's explaining, you you know, you know, somebody will say, well, what's Gnosticism? Oh, Gnosticism is, is this ancient thing. And I'll go, no, it's not ancient. We're, th- th- this country is full of Gnostics. Who, who've got the secret decoder ring. Oh, you're right. You know, have you, uh, it's, not, uh, it's not just Daniel. They've all got their own particular book, you know, and uh,
1: what's, um, Oh, what's his name? He just died in the past year or two. Harold Bloom, the uh, admitted, self-admittedly Gnostic, Kabbalistic uh, Jewish um, uh, literary critic at Yale. Uh, And he wrote a book about America's religion. And that is his basic argument. He says America's religion is Gnosticism. Uh, He chooses Mormonism and a few other like homegrown American versions of this to say, see... (laughs) look at this. Uh, So it's weird because there's like a Gnosticism and there's like a a secret uh, decoder ring aspect to it. Um, But then it's also this strange materialism that can also come with a lot of American Christianity. Um, Right? So it's like, it's almost this weird inverse. We can't actually seem to like be in the middle of like what it means. I mean, kind of like Christology, like, you know, fully God, fully man. We somehow have to like float up here in regions where it has nothing to do with our ethics and all it has to do with really is kind of like knowing good the knowledge. Um, and by ethics, I just mean the way that we're supposed to live. Or you have this kind of, if you live the right way, you will be blessed. You will get the stuff if you just got to name it and claim it uh, in the name of Jesus. And it's fascinating because you actually read Old Testament literature. I mean, Job here, um, because you read the Proverbs, and this is kind of an inner intercanonical, uh, if you read the Proverbs on a simplistic level, you'll come away and maybe think some name it and claim it stuff, right? The righteous man is going to be blessed. The righteous man is going to get this and that and that. Yeah, but then Job is a part of wisdom literature. And Job says, I'm the righteous man, and I got everything taken away from me. And I got some crappy friends too. So what are you going to do for me? So, uh, well... I think the answer, of course, is Jesus to Job. Um, but you can see within the canon this, if you don't read all of the text together, you're going to come up with a, uh, a bad understanding of what Scripture actually teaches because you're just kind of picking and choosing stuff. I would say this is the same for the uh, the Orthodox tradition, uh you can get really, really gung-ho about the uh, the uh, ascetics and Desert Fathers and things, but if you don't actually read them in their own kind of self-criticism, just read the sayings of St. Anthony and the, the readily accessible, um, well, you can just Google them and find them. And you can see these kind of seeds of self-criticism or at least drops of like, well, I'll, I'll quote um, Ice Cube here, check yourself before you wreck yourself. Um, <laughs> <laughs> i'm sure he got that from st Anthony. <laughs> <laughs> <sighs> but that basically you need to be aware before you think all of your asceticism or that you've you know sold all of your goods or that you're out in the desert that somehow you're special mm-hmm. uh No, you've just decided to take the battle to, you know, the front door of the demons because they thought the wilderness was where the demons were Um, and yourself because you're out there. Uh, But that doesn't mean that us here in the city or, you know, in normal parish life uh, don't have the same, you know, we're going to, we're in the same struggle that they are. They are just doing it like the Marines versus us as the grunts in the uh, army here. Uh, but we all have latrine duty and uh, other duties <laughs> that uh, we have to fulfill, even if we're not in the Marines. Um, so, I Stephen, as the proto martyr, um, when is he commemorated liturgically? He, Does anyone remember? A day, a day mm-hmm. or two after Christmas, isn't he? <laughs> yep. Yeah. Uh, I believe that's in the West as well. Yeah. As that well, yes. at least he's, no, I, he's. I know it. I know it from the Catholic tradition.
3: It's like 26th yeah. or twenty-seventh, I I think, of December. Yeah,
1: um, for us, it's the synopsis of the Theotokos right after the feast. Right, M- most major feasts. So we're coming up. This the, being in the Apostles' Fast, we have Peter and Paul coming up. Right after Peter and Paul is the synopsis of the of the Apostles. So after every major feast, you'll have another feast that kind of highlights the actors the secondary actors of what the great feast was the day before and so Stephen shows up uh as a proto-martyr very quickly after that uh and we here at Saint Anne's uh have had a practice of doing that I would like to keep that but uh we'll see it all depends on family and travel around Christmas uh but you can see the whole Christmas time is uh full of martyrs. And we get, as we get closer to Christmas, it's martyr, martyr, martyr. I mean, almost every day, if you look at the Menaean, there's martyrs, but there's significant martyrs like Ignatius of Antioch uh, is very close to there. And the hymnody starts changing around Ignatius of Antioch uh, to emphasize the nativity. Um, and so the church, uh, and giving him the name Proto-Martyr, of course, he's one of the first, at least for, in scriptures, martyrs of the church. Uh, and he dies um, with Christ on his lips and forgiving all those that had, uh, were harming him. So he's a great example for us in our walk with Christ to, even if uh, folks churn and uh, grind their teeth against us, uh, we need to kind of maintain the serenity of soul. This is what Chrysostom picks up on with Stephen is his kind of serenity in the midst of all of this. That he's able to comp- have, like, of course, Chrysostom picks up on this. <laughs> it's very Chrysostom. Uh, he picks up how he's able to just, kind of, you know, exist because his trust is fully in Christ. Uh, and he makes the philosophers, seren- you know, serene man of the Stoics uh, kind of pale in comparison to him. So he's a great saint. And uh, next time we're going to start looking at the next chapter. And oh, yes, of course. We get to start talking about Paul. Very good. Does anyone have any questions or anything about Acts 7 or Daniel 7?
2: Nope. Lot to digest. Mm-hmm. <laughs> good. <laughs> now I'm going to be up reading Daniel all night. Oh,
1: that's fun. <laughs> Tell me what you figure out, because it'll probably help me. <laughs> I'm really—it has
2: definitely.
1: I'm really facing myself,
0: trying to get through uh, Father DeYoung's. You know, I'm doing Father Young's Bible study, and I'm on Isaiah. And actually, I had to go back to the beginning of Isaiah and start it again because Isaiah is kind of a challenge. And, and, and
1: Isaiah is very hard.
0: Yeah, but he, but I'm really pacing myself. And I'm really trying to get through it because I really want to get to Daniel because I've never really studied. Dan- well, I studied Daniel as an Episcopalian, and I think we got about ten minutes of Daniel, and then we move it on. You
1: know, it's just it's, it's like. Does, Stephen, does Father Stephen have a lot more on Daniel?
0: He's got. Uh, I have to let, let me. I, I might be able to look real quick if you can be patient with me.
1: Well, that's so. What I am going to do is stop the recording. Okay. So, everybody, you'll have to ask David yourself. But the recording is ending now. God bless.